Well, I have no cowboy hat. I'm not riding a pool cue. Uh, but uh, how do you follow something like that? Amazing. Okay, so I'll just do the button with that. So I'll just do that down button. Yeah, that'd be good. Please, um, you've got an outline in uh, what you've got on the way in. It'd be great if you could uh, grab that. You might want to start turning the contents page to uh, find out whether there's a book of Ruth in your Bible and uh, find out where the page is. In a little while we'll look at uh, Ruth chapter 1. Thanks for having me. I am, uh, as, uh, as Laura said, yeah, I, I uh, was a first year uh, engineering student, had lectures in Chem 1 in this building and I uh, became a Christian at the end of my first year at university through a mission that the year ran. It was a, it was a proper mission, it wasn't like the festival thing you had this year. But uh, no, no, no. Um, but uh, I'm very thankful to God and uh, will be for eternity for the work of EU and uh, the ministry here. So uh, it's encouraging to see you guys still here and, and the work, your work on campus. You know, when Christians took up the enormous task of translating the Bible into the Koori languages of Western Australia, they began with Mark's Gospel. Uh, no big surprise, I suppose. It's uh, one of the four biographies of Jesus. It's the shortest. It's probably the simplest. A great place for anyone wanting to investigate what Christianity is about to start. The second book they then translated was the book of Ruth. Interesting choice. I wonder if you had a friend investigating Christianity or had just become a Christian, whether this would be the second thing that you would get them to read. Obscure little Old Testament book that my guess is that some of you here that have been Christians perhaps for many years have never actually seriously looked at. Now maybe they picked it to translate because there was only four chapters, wasn't going to take so long. Or maybe they chose it because Ruth is one of the wisdom books of the Old Testament. Our English Bibles have actually mucked up the, the order of the books in the Old Testament. Uh, the Bible Jesus read originally, the wisdom books of the Old Testament were collected together as a final section. Ruth sat beside Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes. The books to give you wisdom into how to live life well. How to look at life in God's world and understand it and really live it with the wisdom of God. And I think we'll actually see in the next three uh, lunch times together, the next three weeks, in all sorts of ways. Now, please beware this seemingly simple story about a Gentile girl who joins the people of God. Among other things, the book of Ruth will show us how to be wise when life falls apart and your plans are in tatters. How to find hope again when despair seems about to swallow you up. Maybe that's about a month away. Dan's starting. I'm not sure. Ruth will show us how to be wise when you stuff up life big time and make dumb choices and when you need to sort things out with God all over again. It will show us what it looks like if you're someone who's a complete outsider, who knows nothing of God, how you might come to find his love and acceptance and what that might look like for you. But most of all, especially here on the university campus, Ruth will show us as the people of God 
How to be wise with outsiders. How insiders need to think about outsiders. And how in your relationships on campus, how to be insightful and wise and full of love in the way you engage with others. Let's get started. You've got uh, Ruth chapter 1 there. Someone, I think Laura's going to come and read that for us. Today we'll look at Ruth chapter 1. We'll take a peek at the end of the story at Ruth chapter 4 and see how the story pans out. And then we'll think about what does this story say to us about, about being wise here and now, how to live in God's world. Ruth 1, Ruth 4, what it means for us. Okay, reading from uh, Ruth 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Marlon and Chilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Marlon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, And they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more, also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. 
I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Have you heard the name, you heard the story of Larry Walters of Los Angeles? Uh, the man who in uh, 1982 fulfilled his boyhood dream of flying. Uh, poor eyesight had disqualified Larry from uh, training to be a pilot. But in 1982, he purchased 45 weather balloons from an army surplus store. And in his Los Angeles backyard, with his lounge chair securely tied to the porch, he tied all 45 weather balloons to his chair. He filled these um, you know, almost a metre wide balloons with helium and then strapped himself in with some sandwiches, a six pack of beer and a pellet gun. This is uh, what he looks like. Larry planned to sever the, uh, the anchor and lazily you know, float up to maybe the height of about 10 metres over his backyard where he'd enjoy a few hours of flight, a wave to the neighbours and then he figured he could just pop the balloons with his pellet gun and gracefully descend. But things didn't work out quite as Larry planned. When his friends cut the cord on his uh, lounge chair, he didn't float up lazily to 10 metres, he streaked into the sky like a cannon. True story. Pulled by the lift of 42 helium balloons, he didn't level off at 30 30 metres or 300 metres. But after climbing and climbing, he eventually levelled off at 16,000 feet, (laughs) the newspaper report said. At that height, he felt unable to uh, risk shooting any of the balloons, lest he unbalance the load and find himself in real trouble. So he stayed there, drifting cold and frightened with his sandwiches and his beer (laughs) for more than 14 hours. At that point, he crossed crossed into the primary approach corridor for LA International Airport where pilots radiate in seeing something fairly strange. (laughs) I guess at that point, the possibility of being a a mosquito on the windscreen of a 747, Larry decided it was worth the risk to shoot a few balloons and slowly descend. On the way down, the balloons caught in the power lines and Larry managed to black out several suburbs. (laughs) And when they finally got him to, to ground, he was immediately arrested by the LA police force. Safety Inspector Neil Savoy said, we know he broke some part of the Federal Aviation Act and as soon as we decide which part it is, a charge will be filed. You know, maybe it's happened to you that sometimes an idea can seem like a good thing at the time. But if you sat back and thought about it, Larry should have maybe done some calculations, thought ahead, have realised even before he began that this was going to end in disaster and could quite easily have cost him his life. 
The great Bible story of Ruth begins in chapter 1 in much the same way. It begins with a plan that at first glance, as we read it just now for you and I, might seem like a pretty good idea. But a move in the end even more disastrous than Larry in his armchair. As chapter 1 opens, drought comes to the land where Elimelech lives, so he gathers his family and moves to a place with greener pastures. Make sense? Elimelech and his family, they, they head off, they set off to seek their fortune far from home. But if we know the the bigger Old Testament story, there's actually something really ominous about this plan to move to Moab. See, Elimelech is introduced in verse 1 as an Ephrathite from Bethlehem. He is an Israelite, one of God's Old Testament chosen people. God's rescued them from slavery and brought them to the promised land where God would dwell with his people there, where they would live with him And it was the place God promised that he would richly bless them. So can you see the problem? This guy wants to move away from the land where God has commanded his people to live, away from the promise of God and the presence of God. It seems Elimelech has a plan. He thinks he'll find the good life away from God, not with him, ignoring what God says and doing what seems right in his own eyes. In the Old Testament story, Moab was the place in Deuteronomy where Israel journeyed from being slaves in Egypt. It's the place where Israel had to make the big decision, to to finally choose. Will they trust God and enter the land to live with him or remain in Moab without him? it's, It's like Elimelech is undoing that decision, at least for him. Also, in verse 2, Elimelech and Naomi, their sons, marry Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah, something expressly forbidden in the Old Testament. In fact, while the people of Israel were not to marry the people of any other nation that worshipped foreign gods that might lead them astray, God had singled out the people of Moab. There were good reasons to stay away from such people and avoid the influence of their culture. The land of Moab, Moabite wives. In an Old Testament way, Elimelech and his family are looking for blessing in all the wrong places. Not with God, but far from him. Uh, His name actually means God is king. But Elimelech, he acts like God and his promises, his commands to be in his presence means very little to him. Well, no Israelite reading the story of Ruth 1 would be surprised about what happens next. Somehow, all the men in the family die. Elimelech, both his sons. And in the culture of the day, this is a disaster for Naomi. To have no family as a woman is quite literally for her to be destitute. No Centrelink payments, no widow's pension, especially far from home in Moab as a foreigner. In verse 4, our English translation hides it a bit. But after the loss of her husband and sons, in verse 4, Naomi is no longer mentioned by name in chapter 1, but simply referred to now as the woman. It's the writer's way of quietly underlining, in the culture of the day, in losing her family, she has lost her identity, her sense of belonging. She has no name. 
Uh, where I live, uh, there's a couple of uh, homeless bag ladies who live in the park, uh, sad, uh, older, alcoholic women, no home, no family. And you know, no one knows their names. They're just the, the ladies in the park. They don't belong to anyone. There is no one who cares. Well, in verse 6, Naomi, broken and empty, decides to head for home. I think we're supposed to imagine a Naomi and Elimelech leaving Israel for Moab in the prime of life, a young couple with two strapping boys off on the big adventure. But if you look in verse 19 as she arrives home, how much has changed? See the reaction? She gets home. The women exclaim in verse 19, can this be Naomi? The suggestion is she is almost unrecognisable. Can this Sad, pathetic sight, be the same person. No longer the young, pioneering women who left full of hope and great expectation. And from her own lips, only self-pity and a stinging bitterness toward God. All hope is gone. Can you, can you see it in her words? If you look at verse 20, she says, Don't call me Naomi, means sweet. Call me Mara, bitter, because the Almighty has made my life bitter. It's not bad luck these things have happened. She holds God responsible. Verse 13, she says, the Lord's hand has gone out against me. And we might wonder if Naomi, you know, had been taken unwillingly by her husband to the land of Moab. Returning, she might finally say, I'm so glad to be rid of that foolish man, to be back with God and his people again. No. See verse 21? See, it gets there again, it keeps recurring. This is Naomi's theme. She says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. But of course, in this chapter, Naomi isn't the only person who's left home, is she? In the middle of the story, Ruth makes a surprising choice, a bold decision to leave her home, to leave behind in Moab everything she knows and come with Naomi now to a foreign land, the land of Israel. But Ruth stands in complete contrast to Naomi and her foolish choices and her foolish talk. Right through the books, these two main characters will, will keep being contrasted for us. Unlike Naomi, Ruth comes to Israel with a great sense of expectation. She has, a, she has a wonderful love and loyalty to Naomi, but also this is a conscious move toward God. See it in verse 16? A God that she has never known. She says, your God will be my God. Your people, my people. This is a choice on the face of it that seems foolish Rather than back to her family, her mum and dad, she's a widow too. But she will journey as a Moabite woman to the land of Israel where Moabite women have no rights, no ceiling payments, where Moabite women are the enemy. It's fascinating. She even, if you look in verse 17, she even calls God the Lord. She says, may the Lord deal with me. And that phrase is the Hebrew, the Hebrew word Yahweh or Jehovah, the special name for God used only by his people, those in relationship with him. There is something big going on here. 
In coming to Israel, Ruth is choosing to come to Yahweh to find her identity now, her sense of who she is. Not in Moab, but in the God of Israel. Hey, it's not that Naomi has, you know, talked Ruth into coming along, is it? You know, has sort of talked up the goodness and the greatness of God. She's done everything to talk Ruth out of it. Go home to your family, your people, your gods. That's a place where you have a future. That's where there is hope for you. But Ruth is so determined. In verse 17, she swears an oath. Only death will stop her from sticking with Naomi and coming to Yahweh. So as these two women head for Israel, different expectations. Who's right? Who's wise? Ruth or Naomi? What awaits them? Well, we'll see that next week, but let's, let's take a peek to the end of the story. You want to turn with me to, to chapter 4 and the second half of chapter 4, about verse 13. We'll spend two more weeks looking at the journey, at the kind of reception these two receive from God and his people as they come to Israel. And there are lots of surprises along the way in this story. But the final scene to compare with the beginning, if you look at chapter 4, verse 13, the story ends... Despite all Naomi's dire predictions, am I going to have another son? Am I going to provide you with another husband? I don't think so. Despite all her predictions, in a twist and turn in the tale, worthy of a daytime soap opera, Naomi does provide Ruth with a husband from her family and Naomi gains a son. The two things... She said were impossible. Look at chapter 4, verse 13. We're told, Boaz, the nephew of Naomi, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Then he went to her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. And the women say to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer, a provider and protector. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid it in her lap and cared for him. And the women living there said, Naomi has a son. Things go well for Ruth, but who is the focus of these words? Who is really being blessed here? Amazingly, surprisingly, who does it say has a son? Now, it really is a grandson, but the writer is making the point. The woman with no name, who belongs to no one, wonderfully has a family again. In chapter 1, as she returns, those around her exclaim at her emptiness, can this be Naomi? But now here in chapter 4, as the son is placed in her lap, Those around her exclaim at how much God has blessed her. And if you look, chapter 4, verse 14, what does Naomi say? Comes home, expecting nothing. The Lord has brought me back empty. Chapter 4, verse 13. For the first time, she has nothing to say. God has finally been able to shut this woman up. 
has silenced her grumbling self-pity and bitterness, not by zotting her with a lightning bolt, but by the sheer magnitude of his surprising kindness to her. You know the story of the prodigal son? Boy leaves home, uh, like Naomi, he goes to a far off country, but you know, at least he worked it out for himself. He comes to his senses and says, why am I here when it would be so much better to be home again? He comes home willingly to own up to his foolish decision to leave, to make peace with a father who longs to forgive him and embrace him. But Naomi, it's not quite that kind of story, is it? Uh, See how amazingly patient God is here? She doesn't come to her senses and and then head, head home, owning up to her foolish decision, dragged back, kicking and screaming, you know, eyes darting everywhere for a way to escape, loudly protesting about God and his harshness as God is bringing her home to bless her and to bless her through Ruth. It's funny, you know, uh, even in chapter 1, is it really true that Naomi comes home with nothing, with empty? What about Ruth? Does it not stand out in chapter 1? Naomi grieves the loss of two sons, but, but here in chapter 4, the women of Israel say they marvel at how Ruth is to Naomi better than seven sons. And Naomi totally takes for granted. This girl, this Moabite woman, so committed to her, swears an oath that only death is going to take her from her. How would you buy, how would you put a price on love like that? You know, here is something an Israelite reading this story would never have expected. A Gentile girl with great wisdom and an Israelite woman who has been such a fool. Naomi is the great warning to us. The more you move away from God, the smaller he gets. Uh, The less clearly you can see him, the less you see him as he really is. The meaner he becomes, the less powerful, the less loving and wonderful. And when you come to know God, the more you know God, you see his great love in the death of Jesus. The more and more amazing and awesome he keeps becoming. Naomi can see nothing but her own emptiness and expects nothing from God. Even the good things she has in Ruth, she can't even see anymore. She's a fool. Through the book, the word that keeps being used about Ruth, Ruth's love for Naomi, is the word kindness. In English, it's a bit of a, bit of a weak and a wimpy word, isn't it? Kindness. But it's actually the word the Old Testament keeps using to describe how God treats the people he's committed to. There is a passion, there is a loyalty about Ruth that shows us something about God's passion and loyalty, the way he does things. And really, that in the end is the key to the book and what it means for you and me. The shape of Ruth's kindness to Naomi is the shape of things to come as the Bible story goes on. It is a tiny picture of God's kindness to you and me and the way he does things in Jesus. God's plan to bless Naomi through Ruth and her son is the shape of his plan 
to bless all the world through another son. Look at how chapter 4 ends in what seems maybe to us like a really weird way to finish this story by spelling out the family tree of Ruth. He looks, he marries Boaz, their son is Obed, the father of Jesse, and it goes on to the father of David, the great Old Testament king. You see, this is the, the royal line, the family line from which the Messiah would eventually come. You see, here is something that any Israelite reading this story, it would completely take their breath away. Ruth from the despised people of Moab, through her son will come the great king God has promised for his people, the Messiah. Through her son will come the one through whom God will bless eventually, you and me. When the New Testament opens, do you know what the first page says? Turn with me to the start of Matthew chapter 1. It should be easier to find than Ruth. It picks up this family tree that we see in Ruth and shows us where it finishes with Jesus. In fact, here in Matthew 1, we find a woman's name where women were not given names in the family line of the Messiah. Long in the list of long, long list of male names, Matthew goes out of his way to mention Ruth the Moabites, the mother of Obed. Now, this strange little Old Testament story, this obscure story about two widows, shows us the shape of God's kindness in Jesus. Like Naomi and her foolish choice to walk away from God, to think she could find life in all its fullness far from him, not seeking him. We've each done the same thing. Now, that's what sin is choosing to live life our own way rather than God's way, to think the good life can be found, not doing what he says, but doing what we think, looking with our own eyes at what we think might be better. And for you and I to arrive before God's throne at the end of life unforgiven, to be shut out from his blessing forever, it will be a far more foolish choice than anything in this story. But like Naomi's story, blessing coming unexpectedly through the birth of a son, Jesus has come that we who have wandered away from God might find in him far greater blessing than Naomi ever knew, his forgiveness, his welcome home, his invitation to join his heavenly family forever, to find our belonging our sense of identity as his adopted sons and daughters. Maybe today some of you can identify with Ruth. You've never had much time for God. You come to EU and you feel like you're a bit on the outside still. You don't really know him at all. How does God feel about you? What kind of welcome would you receive from him? You need to be here in the next two weeks. And you need to know that God offers to you the opportunity to join his people, whoever you are, if you will come. And you will find his acceptance and his welcome. To even like Ruth, be part of his plans and purposes. To be used by God in the kingdom that he is building around the Lord Jesus. But maybe some of us here today can identify a whole lot more with Naomi. 
You know who God is and you know you've wandered away. There was a time when you were close with God but you know you've made foolish choices that have put distance between you and him. Maybe it's not as obvious as picking up sticks and moving to Moab but you've been looking for life, not in living it God's way. There might even be people here today who can identify with Naomi's bitterness, the way she feels towards God for the way life has turned out and the stuff that might even be happening for you now. The book of Ruth wants to say to us, coming home isn't something you do lightly if that's where you are. It means facing up to lots of things. But the book of Ruth tells us, if you've messed up and you want to come home, your heavenly Father longs for you to return. To offer a fresh start if you turn back to him, whatever's gone on, that in finding him again, you might find in knowing him a blessing far richer than you ever imagined. Let's pray. And you might have time for questions if we have time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to pray and ask that you would help us as we look at this strange uh, Old Testament book that seems said in a place so far away from us. We pray that you would help us to think and ponder what it means for us today. Heavenly Father, as we think of Ruth and Naomi, we thank you that you, you welcome us home if we turn to you, whatever we have done and wherever we have been. We thank you that in Jesus you long to bless us with your forgiveness and your acceptance. You call us to, be the, to have the privilege to be part of your purposes, to find who we are, our identity and our belonging in knowing you. We pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Any other questions? Sorry we stuck on Larry. I couldn't work out how the buttons worked here. But that's okay. That's, that's the good picture we'll get. <laughs> Any questions? Questions for the book of Ruth? Ruth chapter 1? Yeah. Sure. Okay. Did, did the book of Ruth actually happen? Because it's a wisdom book. So, um, uh, I'm not sure if this is behind your question, but uh, one of the other wisdom books is the book of Job and people sometimes wonder whether Job's a kind of hypothetical for us, that the book of Job actually makes sense for us whether Job really lived or he didn't and maybe is, is the same thing true here with Ruth. I think the thing that's a clincher for answering that is the way she appears in Matthew chapter 1 in the family tree of Jesus, that um, uh, perhaps apart from that sort of link into the family line, we could look at Ruth and wonder whether it's a hypothetical story. But I think the fact that she's, she's in, she's in the, the flesh and blood family line of Jesus nails that for us, that she really exists. Is that, that kind of what you're asking? Yeah. Yeah. Sure, yep. Okay, so was she really wise to do that? It seems a bit reckless. She, doesn't, she hasn't really got to know God yet, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's a really great question. One of the things we'll, we'll see in the next couple of weeks is being wise, isn't necess- in, being in God's wisdom, isn't necessarily the same thing as being safe and sensible. In fact, very often it will be the opposite of being safe and sensible. If the, the biggest example of God's wisdom is what Jesus did, that he left the comfort and security of heaven to come into our world and die on a cross for us, 
and that's where you see God's wisdom and it's, and it's brightest and shiniest, then that, that warns us that if you want to uh, take on God's wisdom in how you live life, it might mean doing all sorts of scary and risky things for God and I think Ruth is a great example of that. Is that okay? Is that not what you're asking? Or? Yeah, yeah, go. Yep. She allowed to do it? Yeah, okay. Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's fine. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's a, that, again, can people hear the question? I don't need to repeat it. Yeah. Okay. The um, yeah. I think the two things to say there is that uh, often in the Christian life, as we grow in the Christian life, we learn more and more. But even as we come to know the gospel in its simplest form, we've got lots of wisdom from God to to think about how to make sense in life, how to make choices and priorities in, in how we live. And Ruth's maybe at the that the start of that process rather than the end, she'll be someone who grows in wisdom and gets to know God more. Clearly she knows something about God. She, she knows Yahweh, his name, and uh, she wants to come from what she knows and, and belong to God's people. Maybe she doesn't know much, but she's heard enough about God and the way he does things that she wants to know more, and that's the beginning of wisdom, and that's actually the key to wisdom. Is that okay?